Tax and Tech, a modern love story as complicated as Romeo and Juliet. And it's about to get juicier. The Biden administration's latest tax proposals could put U.S. tech giants in a compromising and expensive position. Hello, everyone. I'm Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show, Transfer Pricing Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. On today's episode, we're taking a closer look at the plan's details and the implications for tech giants in the U.S. We're joined today by Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song and VP of Global Projects at the Tax Foundation, Daniel Bunn. But first, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Kenya isn't wasting any time when it comes to transfer pricing compliance. The country's finance bill 2021 is expected to introduce some big changes to its current regulations and definitions. Drum roll, please. The permanent establishment definition has been broadened to include different scenarios, activities, and services that should be taken into consideration when setting up shop in Kenya. It also expands the definition of control as related to a person or transaction and changes the parameters of the digital service tax, applying it only to non-residents. The bill would also require Kenyan entities to submit a country-by-country report within 12 months of the group's financial year end to spell out profit, revenue, income tax, accumulated earnings, tangible assets, employee count, and more in each jurisdiction that it operates. The bill is now open to public consultation and is expected to go into effect by the end of June. Coca-Cola won't let its transfer pricing argument go flat. The beverage giant is asking, more like pleading, for the U.S. tax court to reconsider its November 2020 verdict, an outcome that slammed the company with a $9 billion tax bill. Here's where Coca-Cola is seeing red. The company used a 10-50-50 transfer pricing method agreed to between the IRS and Coca-Cola in a 1996 closing agreement, which the IRS accepted for over 10 years. Coca-Cola argues that the IRS shifted its position on the closing agreement without any notice, a move it deems, quote, unconstitutional, which resulted in original method rejection. The IRS felt that the comparable profits method was a better fit considering Coca-Cola's intangible ownership and that the closing agreement was not binding for future years. Turns out the court did, too, and ruled in favor of the IRS. While there's no forward motion on the motion, something tells us this battle is far from fizzling out. Uniform corporate income tax rates are coming to an end, at least in Argentina. Congress has signed off on a reform that will have taxpayers saying adios to a 30% fixed rate and hola to a progressive tax rate. So how will it be determined? It all boils down to accumulated net taxable income, which could impact whether M&Es pay more or less than the fixed rate. Argentine taxpayers have been paying the standard 30% since 2018, along with a 7% withholding tax rate on dividends. The reform also expands the withholding tax as well for fiscal years starting on January 1st, 2021 and after. (music) 
Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song and VP of Global Projects at the Tax Foundation, Daniel Bunn, to talk about tax and tech. And I'm actually going to hand things off to Mimi for this conversation. Mimi, you have the floor. Thank you, Matthew. Daniel, it's so nice to have you back on our show. We're pretty excited. Let's start with a couple of get-to-know-you questions. I'm just curious. I mean, you worked as a senior policy advisor at the U.S. Senate. What is something you took away from that experience that you apply to your current position at the Tax Foundation? Thanks, Mimi. It's it's great to be back on the podcast. That's a great question. Working in the Senate was a fun job, but it was also really challenging. I think the biggest skill that I was able to develop, and I, you know, I don't think anybody does this perfectly, is to be able to take a statement or a legislative document, whether it's something that's draft or something that you're going to have to have a recommended vote on in short order, and be able to take that and figure out where it fits in current law, what the general impacts might be, and an understanding of who you need to talk to, to be able to understand more about it. So be able to have a quick reaction time to new policies and get a general assessment of where things fit, and then be able to figure out, okay, what's the plan here? Is this going to be something that needs to be opposed, something that needs to be changed, something that needs to be supported, and be able to do that, you know, in less than an hour sometimes, or even less, depending on the, on the day and how many policies are, are being considered. Amazing. So definitely the ability to think fast and, and react properly. That's a fantastic skill to have. And over the past year, in terms of the pandemic and being locked down, what would you take away? Have you experienced any positive outcomes really as a result of the pandemic and, and something that you feel like really worked in your favor? Yeah, so I'd, I'd say the biggest thing is more time with my family. I mean, we're, we're very fortunate to not have had some of the really serious negative consequences of the pandemic. And, you know, working from home was a pretty easy transition for me. And my wife already homeschooled our kids. Oh, great. We to deal with the shift from in school to out of school yeah. and back and forth and all that stuff. So it was great just spending time working from home. And then at the end of the day, shutting things down and two minutes later being at the dinner table, hanging out, playing (laughs) games, or, you know, we did a bit more camping than we normally do this past year. So it it was a, it was a great time being with the family. No, I love that. And then yes, kudos to your wife for homeschooling the children, even in a non-pandemic environment. That's, that's my hero for that. Absolutely. (laughs) So let's get into the meat of our discussion here. So what does the current tax landscape look like for U.S. tech companies? And and why is it such an area of concern for profit shifting? 
So I think it's worth thinking back through essentially the last decade of, of tax policy. Tech companies, large companies with valuable intangible assets have a little bit more flexibility than companies that say rely on natural resources in certain countries or heavy manufacturing or whatever. These companies that have intangible assets or like software or patents have a little more flexibility in planning where they earn their income. They might be able to shift a patent or software license from the U.S. to a lower tax jurisdiction, earn the revenues there, pay royalties from the high tax jurisdiction to the low tax jurisdiction, and minimize the taxes they might pay on those assets. But this was in kind of an increasing area of policy focus starting around a decade ago after the global financial crisis. A lot of countries with policymakers that were interested in increasing taxes on companies started paying attention, more attention, I'd say, to this behavior by tech companies or, again, other companies like in the pharmaceutical sector that might have these types of structures that utilize low tax jurisdictions. And this led to a huge conversation at the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, a group of relatively developed countries in Paris where they have their meetings, this group of countries started saying, okay, what can we change about corporate tax rules to minimize the use of low tax jurisdictions, whether by tech companies or by other multinationals that structure their investments or their profits through these low tax jurisdictions. And that kind of set off a a starting gun of a whole new round of anti-avoidance policies, policies meant to target low tax jurisdictions and a series of policy changes, especially after 2015, that just, to be completely honest, created a lot of uncertainty, a lot of countries changing the rules, providing guidance, providing new ways of calculating things and new tax burdens and things like that. And then, you know, more recently, you've had countries adopting things that specifically target tech companies like digital services taxes that are based on gross revenues associated with where a company might have its users and applying those relatively low rates of tax, but on a gross basis, so you might have high marginal rates to tax companies having to figure out how to pay those taxes. And then you have the Biden administration proposals, which again, are broadly targeted at large multinationals generally, but I think tech companies are wary of these proposals as well. So it's been a highly uncertain environment with a lot of policy changes over the last decade, and particularly over the last five years, and not just because of U.S. tax reform and the new Biden administration, but other countries doing things as well. Let's unpack that a little bit. The Biden administration's tax plan. Tell us a little bit, what does that actually include? So it includes several things that are going to impact, I'd say, large profitable companies of which tech companies are are a significant share. The first thing is their proposal for a global minimum tax. The global minimum tax would be, as the Biden administration proposes, at a nominal rate of 21%. And this is building off of policy that was adopted in tax reform in 2017, known as guilty, global intangible low tax income. The nominal rate under existing law on guilty is 10.5%, but because of all sorts of problems with the guilty calculation and conflicts with underlying existing law, the effective rate on guilty can be very high, potentially close to the 21% statutory rate. So if the Biden administration increases the corporate tax rate to 28% and then changes the nominal rate on guilty to 21%, you could still have effective rates on guilty much above that. 
The Biden administration is also putting forward a, a tax that would be based on book profits rather than taxable profits. Uh, and this is the difference between, you know, what companies report to their shareholders in SEC filings and follow accounting rules for versus what they report to the IRS following tax rules. And the difference between those numbers, those profit numbers, can be pretty significant for good policy reasons. But a lot of policymakers, including those in the Biden administration and the Treasury Department, have said that no, there shouldn't be this difference between whether you owe tax based on taxable income or not if you're looking at financial profits. So this 15% minimum book tax would also hit highly profitable companies and potentially even in, in the tech sector. Now, one other thing that the administration is doing related to the digital services taxes that I mentioned earlier, the administration is trying to negotiate a deal at the OECD that would eliminate these digital services taxes and replace it with something different, a different way of U.S. companies or companies around the world calculating where they owe taxes. But that's an, another area of uncertainty and an area where the Biden administration is trying to work to change things. That's interesting because I think that prior to the Biden administration, there was some concern about the U.S.'s participation, if you will, in the OECD Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 initiatives, this idea of global minimum taxation, because it felt as if it was targeting U.S. multinationals, right? So it's a little bit of a, a change in the perspective here, but still, this plan, we would expect it to perhaps still disrupt U.S. tech companies, right, and their tax business as usual. So tell us a little bit about that. How does this, how will this change in the tax plan disrupt the U.S. tech companies and perhaps some of their behavior? So I'd say there, there'd probably be two big effects. Number one, the kind of intended effect of the global minimum tax proposal and this negotiation over Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, as you mentioned at the OECD, is meant to either wipe out or really minimize the use of low-tax jurisdictions for putting your software or your IP and earning your profits offshore. U.S. tech companies and other companies that have IP in low-tax jurisdictions, if they haven't already, because of recent reforms, moved their IP to higher-tax jurisdictions or to the locations where they are doing their research and development, then they would have even more reason to do that. Now, they could potentially keep all those things in a, I'd say, a country that has a normal tax system, but at a relatively low rate. Ireland is one that comes to mind regularly, especially when it comes to U.S. tech companies. You could still have your R&D and your IP in Ireland, you know, have a relatively normal tax system that you work with there. But the global minimum tax would still potentially eat away at some of the benefits being in Ireland. So move maybe from a zero tax jurisdiction to a tax jurisdiction like Ireland with a nominal rate or a statutory rate of 12.5%. Another effect, though, and this gets to the book minimum tax, is that you would be clawing back some of the tax benefits that policymakers have embedded in the tax code that lead to differences between taxable profit and financial profit. So on financial profit, you're, you're reporting to your shareholders you know, what you've earned based on standard accounting rules. And it's kind of supposed to be a you know clear picture, apples to apples comparison with other companies of the financial state of the company. The tax system is designed to, in, in many ways, tax what Congress defines as taxable profit. And taxable profit gets reduced 
by a lot of different things, including credits for research and development, deductions for different labor compensation, including stock options provided to employees. And these sorts of things, the tax benefit of those policies would get eroded if a company has to face this 15% book minimum tax that doesn't pay attention to research and development costs or doesn't pay attention to the various stock options or compensation for, for employees. So tech companies might have to change the way they're, you know, benefiting from the existing tax code or, or may, you know, reduce some of their practices that lead to benefits from the tax code if this book minimum tax is put in place. And what about the foreign-derived intangible income? I know we were talking a, a little bit about guilty, but there's also the foreign-derived intangible income, which is applicable to these U.S. tech companies since they have these cost-sharing arrangements in place, not to complicate the matter, right, where IP is owned on an offshore basis and intangibles are owned there and profit is is created on a foreign basis. But I think that there is an expected repeal of that foreign-derived intangible income uh, deduction, correct? Yes, absolutely. Thanks for the reminder there. So foreign-derived intangible income is a provision that was essentially meant to match guilty. So if a company was going to have to pay more tax on foreign earnings, and it had its IP offshore and these sort of cost-sharing arrangements like you were mentioning, then there might be a way to incentivize that company to bring those IP assets back to the U.S. and earn profits from those IP assets in the U.S. and pay tax to the U.S. government. And FDII, foreign-derived intangible income, is meant to provide a tax benefit for having your IP in the U.S. rather than offshore. And the effective rates on guilty and FDII were designed to relatively balance this incentive. Depending on which company you're looking at, you might say whether that balance has been struck or not. Some companies have responded to FDII by bringing IP assets back into the U.S., but the Biden administration, as you mentioned, is planning to repeal it. They say that the benefit isn't worth it. And in their most recent policy document, they say they're going to replace the FDII benefit with a research and development tax benefit. It's not clear what that research and development tax benefit is, if it would be something that would clearly for you know different companies match the value that they were getting out of FDII, or if it would simply match the revenue cost of FDII. And those are two different things. It's one thing to say that a company is getting a benefit from FDII, and it's another thing to say that the new R&D benefit would also create the same benefit for the company that has shifted its IP location. Right. Well, it's not easy to just start innovating in the U.S. necessarily if they have developers offshore somewhere in another location, right? Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting that you you mentioned that the offset was to promote the R&D tax credit incentives, and yet there's a lot of discussion right now about the proposed amortization rules on the R&D tax credit calculation. But We can talk about that another time. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a big issue that a lot of companies are paying attention to this year. Absolutely. Yes, yes. So, I mean, essentially, U.S. tech companies here, we know that many of them have created these tax arbitrage situations, right, and where they've developed cost-sharing arrangements 
and been able to take advantage of these these tax loopholes in some ways. But clearly, I think the initiatives by the various tax administrations by the OECD's work have really been focused on trying to close those tax loopholes. And then the Biden administration's proposed tax plan actually aims to implement this global minimum tax, minimum book tax, the FDII deduction repeal, and there's going to be a lot more groundbreaking disruption to this tax landscape that ultimately, I think, impact many tech companies. So how have these U.S. tech companies reacted to these proposals? I think one of the interesting things looking at the landscape over the last six months or so has been that for globally engaged companies, the mention of an increased corporate tax rate hasn't been as much of a bother, but the book minimum tax, the changes to guilty, the changes to FDII raise a lot of alarm bells. And I think, you know, at this point, the administration proposal is out there. Members of Congress and the Senate and the House are trying to work through details to figure out if they can get a revenue and spending package for an infrastructure plan. Companies are trying to engage as much as possible in productive conversations with lawmakers to be able to say, hey, you know, it's one thing to close off loopholes, like you were talking about with the various policy changes over the last several years. It's another thing to take those policies that have closed off loopholes and then crank them up to 11 and say that, no, you know, we're, we're no longer interested in tax policies that benefit sort of the growth of U.S. tech companies that we've seen, you know, over the last year with the pandemic, but even prior to that. You know, these companies invest heavily. When you, people think of tech companies, oftentimes they think, oh, yeah, it's just software. But that's not necessarily the case. These companies engage in massive amounts of capital expenditures, massive amounts of private infrastructure build out, and massive amounts of hiring. And to think that uh, policy would be able to increase the tax revenue that you would get from the profits of these companies without also impacting some of that investment and hiring behavior, I think is ignoring some important effects. I agree with that. I, it's interesting because there is a mixed sentiment here, right? I think we've seen Jeff Bezos quoted as saying that he's for higher corporate tax rates versus Intel's Pat Gelsinger is opposed to it. You know, there, there's two different viewpoints here in terms of even though they're both of these companies would be highly impacted by these changes in the proposals, the sentiment is still a little bit different. Now, Let's look at these three proposals up close again. Global minimum tax rate, the FDII deduction repeal, and the minimum book tax. How would a global minimum tax rate impact the tech industry in particular? So I think, again, it's moving beyond closing off the various loopholes in tax systems that allow companies to utilize low tax jurisdictions to either channel their investments or have profits. So it's taking policies that have closed off some of those gaps in the tax system and just cranking it up another notch. And this really, the outcome of this approach really depends on what's agreed to at the international level. Now, if the Biden administration gets what it wants as far as a 21% rate on guilty and a 15% agreement at the global level, then, you know, it's going to significantly increase effective tax rates 
on companies, not just tech companies, but on companies around the world. You know, the OECD, when it did its impact assessment, it found that there's a nearly one percentage point increase in effective average tax rates just for these low tax jurisdictions, which they refer to as investment hubs. And now you can think about, okay, maybe that's an on average one percentage point increase in effective tax rates. But some companies are much more exposed to that kind of tax policy change than others. And I think the tax sector is there. So over the economy, it might be a one percentage increase in effective average tax rates. But for you know, a company that's really exposed to these low tax jurisdictions, it can be you know, four or five percentage point increase or higher increase in effective tax rates due to the global minimum tax. Do you think this is going to discourage or negatively impact some of these more lower tax rate jurisdictions, which are typically more of the developing country nations, right? Yeah. So I think there's two ways to think about this. One, it is going to discourage companies in using these low tax jurisdictions to channel their investments. Mm -hmm. Number two, it may encourage these countries to change their corporate rules to be able to collect some of the revenues from the global minimum tax. But if you do that, you're still potentially going to have a disadvantage in attracting real investment going forward. I think of these countries as conduits for investment. So you're able to structure your business to be able to have something flowing through a low tax jurisdiction to benefit your operations in higher tax jurisdictions. And if that low tax jurisdiction is no longer low tax or it's the same tax as other tax jurisdictions, then there's not as much reason to have right. anything there, whether right. it's your R&D or just a letterbox kind of company or, or, or whatever. So it could impact these locations. And I think one lesson that policymakers should look at is the elimination of what was called Section 936 the Puerto Rico provision from the U.S. tax code. A lot of people don't necessarily remember this, but prior to 1996, U.S. companies could structure their operations to get a lot of relatively tax-free profits through Puerto Rico because of U.S. tax rules that kind of benefited those sorts of structures. But over the course of time, starting in 1996, that tax benefit was eliminated. Research has showed that that's not only had an impact on U.S. companies utilizing Puerto Rico as a conduit for their investment or some of their investment activities, but it had domestic blowback on the domestic job markets and investment of U.S. companies. And we know the Puerto Rico story hasn't been great either over the last 20 years. Interesting. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. What about the FDII deduction repeal? I think 
you know, Amazon themselves were able to capitalize on that in the past three years with deductions close to $500 million. How is that change going to impact the tech industry in particular? So one of the things that's always important to think about is the tax differential between your domestic tax rate and the potential foreign tax rate. And by eliminating FDII and increasing the corporate tax rate and still having a lower nominal rate on guilty, the U.S. is essentially telling companies, hey, you should put your IP offshore again. Now, for some companies, the tax benefit may be greater or smaller or whatever, but there's an incentive to benefit from the rate differential of the corporate tax rate and the guilty rate to be able to say, okay, we might shift some of our IP offshore again. And I don't think that's the intended outcome at all. So I'm you know, looking at the proposals from the administration. I'm not sure that they completely thought through the various consequences of that sort of policy change, especially the elimination of the FDII. Now, some members of the Senate Finance Committee have looked at this as well, and it doesn't seem like they're interested in eliminating FDII, but they would rather tie the benefits of FDII to research and development that's actually done in the United States. So maybe still get a you know the significant tax benefit of having your IP in the U.S., but mainly tying that to R&D activity in the U.S. Right, the, the initial stages of the development of IP, right? And so, right. yeah, but then that sort of, it poses a question in my mind because companies could still value the IP and then sell it offshore. They certainly could. So yeah. this, is, this is one of the things where you've got multiple tools in the toolbox and that sort of offshore selling, that sort of transfer pricing mm-hmm. game that companies could play, you know, that's, that's going to be a challenge kind of as long as you stick with the standard corporate tax structure of determining where profits are taxed and, and things like that. So I think, you know, that question of transfer pricing and how you value assets that are sold offshore and create deductions in a high tax jurisdiction and then future income streams in a low tax jurisdiction, that's going to continue to be a problem, especially as IP continues to dominate the value add for companies, because these IP assets are really tough to judge their value, especially at a time when a company, you know, thinks they've got something really valuable, so they want to get it out of the high tax jurisdiction, but they're not really sure how valuable it'll be. You you get into these tax disputes where the U.S. or another tax authority is looking back and saying, hey, that IP that you priced at this amount, that was much more valuable than that. And we've seen that over the last five years. Yes. And then try to collect tax based on that kind of retrospective. Yeah, which I think is is a bit unfair, right, to the multinationals. But at the same time, yeah, no one has the <laughs> no one has the capacity to look into the future. Right. right, so. right. What about the minimum book tax? So you had talked about, you know, clearly there's a challenge because book tax and tax profits are are different, right? So how would this impact U.S. tech companies? I think there's a couple of problems that are still uncertain with the book minimum tax. At different points, it seemed to me that either this is going to raise a lot of revenue or it might not raise any. And this is due to potential policy issues that just haven't been worked out. So let's say in a year, a tech company has a huge book profit, but for tax reasons, they've had a lot of losses that they built up over previous years that they're able to offset most, if not all of their tax bill. So, you know, you compare the two and on the tax bill, there's essentially zero taxable profits. But on financial reports, you know, there might be billions of profits. 
And it's going to, if the book minimum tax applies to those book profits and doesn't allow some sort of offset in the future for future tax liability under the normal corporate rules, then the book minimum tax is going to hit really hard in some years simply for you know, reasons that there are differences between book and tax calculations. And this sort of, I'd say, volatility of tax payments that might become due because of the book minimum tax could create a lot of uncertainty for tech companies. And they may, you know, it may impact how they do their business to be able to minimize the differences between book and tax profit so that they can, you know, again, minimize the various spikes they might have in corporate tax payments under the book minimum tax or under normal corporate tax rules. Or, you know, if the policy creates offsets between the normal rules and the book minimum tax, either through tax carry forwards or offsets and things like that, then it's really just a timing issue of, okay, we've got this big tax payment in this year, but we're not going to have to pay tax under the normal corporate rules in future years because we're able to carry forward some, some of the excess tax. So it's really unclear how the policy is going to work out, but it could create some serious volatility for tech companies that they may want to avoid by changing you know, how they operate so that book and tax differences aren't so dramatic. Right, right. And so out of these three proposals, which one do you think is going to have the biggest impact? I think when it comes to tech companies, I think the elimination of the FDII is probably going to have the biggest impact because, you know, a lot of U.S. companies, not, not, not all U.S. companies have, you know, put their IP offshore. A lot of them have their IP in the U.S., and then all of a sudden, they were getting, you know, not only the corporate rate reduction, but a, a, a tax benefit for having that IP in the U.S. And then if that is eliminated and the corporate tax rate goes up to 28%, then all of a sudden you're punishing companies that were do, kind of doing the right thing all along from the U.S. policy perspective. And then also for companies that have brought back their IP into the U.S., it's sort of a whiplash effect. And it's not really clear whether, you know, companies should plan to go ahead and put their IP offshore again to avoid any new tightening of rules on those sorts of transfers from the administration or from Congress, or if they should kind of wait it out, or if policies change this year and then four years later or however many years later down the road and, you know, you might have a new president, a new Congress or whatever, and the rules change again. So I think that issue, the FDII, the question of where you should put your IP assets and how you should be able to benefit from that is a, is a big question. Yeah. And do you think that these plans are the most effective strategies to conquer BEPS, base erosion profit shifting? And, and besides the, you know, section 936 reinstatement, what else would you particularly think would augment or could augment the Biden administration's proposals to help bolster the initiatives? So this could be a whole entire other conversation, (laughs) but, you know, I think back to the conversation we were having about closing off loopholes versus just seriously Mm -hmm. cracking down on things. I think it would have been hugely beneficial that starting maybe last year or the year before, countries around the world be able to say, okay, Let's put a pause on these various policies that are meant to tackle avoidance. Let's take an assessment. Let's take stock of all the changes that have been made post-tax reform, post what they call ATAD in Europe, and be able to say, okay, where are the rules now? And then how can we either unify some of these rules so that companies don't have to figure out the different calculations for different countries and, and things like that, and you know, have, have a more unified approach there? 
And then where are the real gaps remaining, as opposed to simply slapping on a global minimum tax on top of all these various rules that have closed down loopholes, and then cranking that global minimum tax up to a relatively high bar? Right. As you described that, it made me think of painting a house where you have multiple layers of paint and we're just adding another layer of paint instead of scraping down all the existing paint to be able to start over with a clean slate in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great way to talk about it. You know, I'd say about a decade ago, countries were looking at their tax system and they saw, you know, a lot of chips in the in the paint, a lot of mm-hmm. uh, a lot of problems and saying, "Okay, well, let's try to, you know, figure out a way to to repaint over over this, you know, fix some fix some holes in the wall and, and things like that." <laughs> But companies, you know, used either different coats of paint or different colors or different yep. types or whatever. And I'm saying, well, it'd be good if everybody was kind of painting with the same thing before we put yet another coat on. That's right. <laughs> I, I like that metaphor. So the tax activity of these tech companies clearly coming under, it's, it's under the microscope. It's been that way for a while, not only in the U.S., but globally. Based on your experience, how have you seen the tax and tech relationship evolve over the years? And, and what do you think these types of companies should anticipate in the future, right? I'd say the number one rule is politics, politics, politics when it comes to tax and tech. It has become a very popular political issue, not just in tax, but on, on various policy areas to be able to say that you have a position as a politician, either in the U.S. or abroad, that is going to attack the tech companies either through regulatory changes or tax changes or things like that. And I think that's that's a big story. And unfortunately, when so much politics, popular politics get involved in a policy issue, you miss a lot of the important policy discussions that could lead to, you know, pragmatic outcomes or, you know, even desired outcomes by various policymakers. But what we've seen over the last decade and what I'm worried about with the current proposals is that you're not going to have pragmatic solutions, that these popular kind of narratives about tax and tech are going to lead to policy solutions that have pretty sizable unintended consequences rather than just being able to have a targeted solution. You know, tax and tech have always had a complicated relationship. And and I think that what we're seeing is it's only going to continue to intensify. And the Biden administration, along with other global organizations, is making it clear that it will not tolerate the loopholes and the detections of the past and is blazing forward toward creating more tax transparency as well as additional compliance. And while these plans have not yet been passed, these initiatives indicate that the U.S. tech giants we know of, and we love, by the way, right, will be getting their own operating system update in the form of a corporate tax bill. Daniel, thank you so much for your perspective on this matter. It's a pretty complicated topic, but hopefully my pain analogy helps paint it in more simple light for our listeners. Absolutely. Thank you, Mimi. It's been great talking to you. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing 
software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions' AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions' transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. Welcome back, everyone. We now come to my favorite part of the show, as you all know, our rapid-fire round of more personal questions. Sometimes they delve into transfer pricing, but it's a little bit more to get to know our guest, and our guest today is Daniel. Always question one, Daniel, in our rapid-fire is, are you ready? I'm ready. Perfect. Question number two, how do you unwind after a long day? Go downstairs, hang out with the family. I mean, over the last year, for sure, hang out with the family, you know, play some games, have some dinner, maybe go on a little walk with the family. That's about it. Love it. Love it. What's the most fulfilling part of your job? Oh, I get to work with a lot of really interesting people across the world and just being able to hear different perspectives on various policy issues from folks, you know, in Southeast Asia or Europe or South America is super fulfilling. Or Tarrytown, New York. Just talking about. Of course, of course. <laughs> just, just talking about transfer pricing. What would be the title of your pandemic memoir to be? He tried to go fishing more often. <laughs> I'm gonna write an introduction called "I Tried to Clean the Music Room." <laughs> I like that a lot. What's one piece of advice you wish you had received when you started your career? I would say to keep track of relationships. Um, I am a very out of sight, out of mind person. And I really wish I had earlier in my career kept track of people that I got to work with or got to know. Been, you know, trying to rebuild some of those relationships over the last year. But I, I really, you know, feel like I've missed out on a chunk of good, you know, relational value in my life. For sure. For sure. I feel as though, you know, back in the day when it was, you know, just the Rolodex, you know, it, that, that was the way everybody could at least or at least a way for everybody to to kind of keep in touch. Now it, there's three or four formats. Then one goes out of style. Then you lose touch with all those people. Keeping in touch with folks from high school, especially like Facebook, it, it's it's really tough, especially since everybody's kind of leaving Facebook at the moment. Right. But, hey. Facebook also chooses what you get to see from people yeah. at high school. So it's like every once in a while I hear somebody had a kid and I'm like, I haven't seen them on Facebook in forever. And then I go look and like, oh, they had a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's tough. I'll say this, though. LinkedIn does a really incredible job. And they've done a really incredible job only going on the up and up. They've only gotten more and more relevant. They were never the most relevant because they always had a, a extremely specific lane, professional life. Right. But they don't lose relevancy and the network hasn't shrunk and they've never given the reason for the network to shrink. So right. hats off to LinkedIn. Maybe that could be our saving grace as, as we go into the 2020s, trying to keep in touch with everybody over the course of our resume. Daniel, thank you so much for being with us. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Matthew. It's been great joining. 
We want to thank Daniel for joining us today along with Mimi. We want to thank everyone at home for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This podcast was hosted by yours truly, Matthew DeMello, audio engineered by Andrew O'Donnell. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Mary Lynn Mitchumstrom is our executive producer. We'll catch everyone next week.